0: outline. After Noor's read, uh, Wes is going to come and uh, open that passage for us.
1: Okay. Mark chapter 15, starting at verse 16 to 39. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. The death of Jesus. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God.
2: Thank you. Please keep those words open in front of you because I'll be referring to them on the way through. It's important that you always check the word of God to check that what I'm saying is there. Many Australians are aware that Christians believe that Jesus was nailed to a cross and died. But very few, very few Australians sorry, understand why that is important. Originally, Mark wrote his gospel for the Christians in Rome in approximately 60 AD. These Christians, back there, lived in a world who did not understand at all why someone would worship someone who was crucified. That piece of graffiti up there comes from a a Roman, an ancient Roman, and it sums up how the average roman viewed the christian worship of jesus whoever wrote that graffiti was mocking a christian by the name of alexamenos he's picturing alexamenos's god in the way that many romans misunderstood christianity like the egyptian gods with human bodies and animal heads but the ancient many ancient romans believed that the Christian God was a donkey. And that's how they picture him worshipping Jesus. In addition to that, everyone in that world knew that the Romans only crucified criminals, traitors, rebellious slaves, and the general scum of the earth, people who had no standing at all. So by picturing Alexamenos worshipping a God on a cross... He's also saying, Alexa Minos is absolutely stupid, worshipping as God, someone who died as the scum of the earth. The early Christians of Rome, like us today, believed in Jesus and trusted in his death for them. But they lived in a world who thought they were absolutely mad for worshipping a crucified criminal. In some ways, that's our world too. Many Australians could have drawn that graffiti. And if you realised how many spelling mistakes were in the Greek, you'd probably say, yes, many Australians could have drawn that graffiti. Mark wrote his Gospel to help the Christians of Rome understand why Jesus had to die and to help the Christians of Rome understand why Jesus' death, why it was shameful in a human sense... Was something we as Christians can be proud of and trust in. So let's read Mark's account of Jesus' death together and let Mark tell us why Jesus' death is so important and worth trusting. But first, a few words about how to read Mark's Gospel. Mark's Gospel begins with the opening words the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. A few verses later, in verse 11, we hear from the mouth of God himself. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. So as we read chapter 15 later where Jesus is getting crucified, we read that knowing that God has already told us that Jesus is the son of God. A few verses later in chapter 1, after the ones we just read, we read in verse 14, 15. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Mark summarising for us why Jesus came to earth. Jesus came to proclaim that the time has come. The time has come for God to fulfil his prophecies in the first century and for mankind to turn back to God and stop rebelling against God. These insights from chapter 1, that he's God's son and he's come to call mankind back to God, these create irony throughout Mark's gospel as we read it. As we read through the events of Jesus' crucifixion in a minute, We meet various people who are abusing and mocking Jesus. They're mocking him for his claims to be God's son and king. And we read all this knowing that they are mocking someone who actually is God's son and king. Someone who actually was the God who created the world. They are actually mocking someone who has come from heaven and broken into time and space to call all of mankind, including you and me, back to God. We need to keep that in mind. We also, as we read Mark 15, need to keep in mind the Old Testament prophecies, and in particular, Isaiah 53, we'll look at in a little while. Now, we pick up the story in Mark 15, verse 16, where Pilate has just sentenced Jesus to be crucified, and the prisoner, Jesus, is removed from Pilate's presence and taken off into the Roman guardhouse. Mark's description of what happens next actually perfectly matches what the archaeologists and the original written text um, tells us. They took him into the praetorium. It says in your translations, the governor's headquarters. In the original Greek, praetorium. The praetorium was the barracks of the elite praetorian guard, who were the emperor's bodyguard and had various barracks around the empire as bodyguards for the governors. The governors, the praetorian barracks and the governors' Roman governor's residence was located inside what had once been Herod's palace, but had been requisitioned by the Roman For the governors and the Praetorian Guard. It says there, in your translations, the whole battalion were called together. The technical term used in the original Greek is a cohort, a Roman cohort. That means one-tenth of a legion. So we have five or six hundred men there. Five or six hundred of them gathered together in the open courtyard of Herod's palace. This is serious mocking. Forget the movies where you see three or four men in a room with Jesus. It's not that. They are using Jesus as entertainment, like a pantomime show for the amusement of 600 soldiers. The mocking words, hail the king of the Jews. You can hear the laughter just ripple through the crowds the mocking robe of the robe of royal the mocking of the purple robe of royalty which they've just borrowed from the palace just right there because Herod did stay there when he came down from Judea to visit the ridicule of the crown of thorns the kneeling at his feet in mock as everyone laughs they strike him on the head with a reed what we'd probably call a cane they spit on him Jesus endures the shame and the humiliation as he is their toy for the game among the boys. They think they're funny, mocking a wannabe failure. But they are completely spiritually blind to the fact that they do have right in front of them God's son and Messiah King who has come to save the world and call mankind back to himself. As we read this, knowing that they are doing that to God's very own son, I don't know about you, but within me, I, I cry out, no, he's God's son, you can't do that to him. But then our minds go back to Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, He was despised and we esteemed him not. And we know that this was actually all just part of God's prophesied plan. In verse 22, it was named the place of the skull where he was taken. Keep following it in the verses as I refer to them. It was named the place of the skull because it was a place of death and shame. In verse 23, they offered him myrrh. This was a drug that was used to dull the pain. But it wasn't an act of kindness to give him myrrh. The Romans, as expert torturers, used the myrrh to keep the victim alive and conscious longer so that the pain that they were feeling and the shame and the humiliation would be extended out further. The point Mark wants to make is Jesus endured it all without the help of drugs. Verse 24, note the simple words, and they crucified him. Now, despite the movies, where they show the blood and the guts and the close-ups of the nails going through the wrists, despite the movies, in contrast, Mark is loudly silent about the physical details of the crucifixion. All he says is, and they crucified him. It seems like Mark doesn't want us to focus on the blood and guts and the physical pain, but on the shame and the rejection of it all. And later we'll look at the wrath of God. In 24, they divide his clothes. Yes, despite the statues you see, he was naked, completely naked. The extreme shame, intentional. While they, at his feet, played lots, rolled dice to see who would get his clothes. No respect. They think so little of him. 25-26 It was the Roman custom to put a sign over the cross so everyone knew the charge this person was being crucified for. Mark wants us to know that he was crucified for the crime of being God's King. This is dripping with irony. Pilate didn't put the sign up as an act of worship to Jesus. Pilate didn't put the sign up because he actually thought Jesus was politically the king of the Jews. Pilate put the sign up because he wanted to annoy the Jews. But for us, the reader, we get the irony. God, in his sovereign moving of people and their hearts and their actions was actually intending that that sign would say far more than Pilate ever intended. Rather than heeding God's call and turning back to God and believing in his son, mankind represented there in those people. Mankind was showing the ultimate rejection. They were mocking, scorning and killing God's son, the son and king he'd sent to call us back to himself with the words repent and believe. Verse 27. He was crucified with a criminal on each side and we're meant to connect that with Isaiah 53, 12. And he was numbered with the transgressors. In 29, they deride him. In 30, they mock him. In 32, they revile him. Like most demands for a sign, the demand for a sign in verse 32 was not an act of faith. It was an act of hard-hearted, mocking unbelief. A stubborn refusal to accept all the signs that Jesus had been doing for the last three years to prove exactly the point they're asking him to prove. To prove that he was the Son of God. Let's stop there and pretend we don't know how the story finishes. How would you react if you were God at this point? God sent his son to call us, mankind, back to himself. But they, we, mankind, have beaten, mocked and spat on the son of God and are in the process of killing him. What would you do next if you were God and they were doing that to your son and your king I think God would have been justified to stop the world right there and then and send the whole world to hell but that's not what God does let's read on and see what he actually does do verses 33 to 34 when the sixth hour had come there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Although they mocked him for a sign earlier, God now gives them two signs. The first sign, for those with eyes to see, the darkness for three hours was, was a sign that Amos, chapter 8, verse 9, was taking place. I'll read it. On that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. If you read through Isaiah 9 in the wider context, this was a prophecy of the day when God would judge sin. This three hours of darkness was a sign that they were witnessing God's judgment against sin. Against our sin but God's wrath was not being poured out on mankind who deserved it it was being poured out on his own son why did God punish Jesus not us Mark doesn't stop the story to tell us we have to go further in the Bible Paul does tell us 1 Corinthians 15, 3, for example. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Paul didn't just make that up. God had shown Paul that Jesus' death was fulfilling the prophecies of, for example, Isaiah 53. I've got a little collection of Verses, snippets of verses from Isaiah 53, written in the 8th century BC. But he was pierced for our transgressions. Remember the sword that went into him? Remember the piercing of the nails? He was crushed for our iniquities. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, stricken for the transgression of my people. When his soul makes an offering for guilt... He shall bear their iniquities, for he bore the sin of many. Mankind deserved the wrath of God for rejecting God and his son and for not heeding his call to come back to God. But instead of punishing us, mankind, he poured out his wrath on his own son. The sin of the world, of all mankind, of us, was taken from us, and placed on Jesus and now darkness was symbolizing that the judgment of God was being poured out on the sins of the world not on us but on Jesus so that if we believe in Jesus we can stand before God on the judgment day with those sins paid for by Jesus taken away the sign of the darkness symbolized the wrath of God But Jesus actually bore more than the wrath of God. The cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, was a cry of anguish. As Jesus knew that God was rejecting him in shame as he bore the shame of the world. Let's look a little deeper into those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the type of culture of the first century, it's called a shame-honour culture, where shame and honour are the most valuable, honour is the most valuable thing and shame is the most horrid thing you could possibly have. In a shame-honour culture, public humiliation by your own people, by your own family, was the worst thing that could happen to you. What was happening to Jesus? He was publicly rejected by his own father. Let your imaginations dwell there for a moment. Imagine a big event like your 21st. For some of us, that's a bit further back to remember than others, but do your best. All your family and friends are there. The speeches have come, and some of your friends are saying really mean, horrible things about you. I don't mean the Australian friendly mean. I mean mean, mean. Your friends, your real friends, are ducking for cover, just leaving you stranded up the front. But you know your father will stand up for you. Your father stands up and turns his back in contempt and walks away and just leaves you stranded there, rejected and alone. Mankind had shamefully rejected God's son and king. But instead of God turning shame upon us because of our shameful behavior, he instead publicly shamed his own son. Jesus bore it both ways. As the son of God, he took the shame directed at God from the world as they mocked him and abused him. As the representative man, he took the shame God directed towards mankind. He was in the middle, taking it both ways. So that come the judgment day, those of us who have acted shamefully towards God, those of us who have not repented and are shut out into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, shame language, as that happens to those who have not believed in Jesus, we who believe in Jesus will not be shamed. But we will be welcomed with honour into God's presence because Jesus has borne the shame that we deserve. In 38, verse 38, let's keep moving. God's sign of the ripped curtain is telling us that God's perfect sacrifice has been accepted. That curtain that was torn in two was the curtain in the temple that kept sinful people away from the presence of God. God didn't keep people away because he hated people. God kept people away as an act of mercy on God's part because if people in their sin come into God's presence, they would be obliterated. The curtain kept us away to save us from judgment and death. The curtain was like a sign at the front door that says, don't come into my house wearing your muddy boots. It's not that I don't love you, but if you walk that mud onto my carpet, I want to spare you from what I'm going to do to you. The curtain was sparing sinful man from the wrath of God should they enter his presence. But in tearing the curtain open, God is symbolically saying Jesus' death is it's been accepted. All that's gone. All the sin and judgment's gone, the shame's gone. He is saying that if we trust Jesus, we will no longer be judged and shamed for our sins. God and man can now come face to face. Because Jesus has paid the death and the shame. Tearing the curtain is like God saying. Come into my house. It's safe. There's nothing to fear. The scene transitions nicely. Jesus is forsaken and for our shame. And we are welcomed into God's presence. Verse 39, the last verse we're looking at. Mark records that a Roman sees and recognises what the Jewish mockers do not. Surely this man was the son of God. The centurion is saying, verbalising, what we are meant to see and recognise. Mark records this detail to challenge his original Roman readers. Mark is in effect saying to them by recording this, this Roman saw, do you? But more than that, the centurion stands as a model to show it's possible to move from mocker to seeing believer. Think back to verse 16 where we started. Jesus was in the Roman guardhouse being mocked by the Roman soldiers. This centurion was probably there. He was probably laughing with the rest of them. As a centurion, he may have even been one of those up front beating and whipping and spitting on Jesus. But now he sees. Just as Mark challenges his original readers... This centurion saw. Do you? What does Mark want us to see? Final summary conclusion of everything we've looked at. Yes, Jesus' death was a shameful death. Humanly speaking, there is no doubts about that. He came into the world as God's son and king to call us back. But the world shamed him and killed him. However... Although the world meant it as a rejection of Jesus and God, God, Jesus, were fulfilling the prophecies, fulfilling God's plan. Isaiah 53 makes it clear clear that God's plan was always that his son would be shamed, mocked, and ridiculed, and rejected, and would always be the substitute for the sins of the world. Mark wants us to see the cross And rather than be ashamed of it, he wants us to glory in it because that is our salvation. He wants us to not turn away from it like an average Roman would, but he wants us to embrace it. Secondly, comprehending and feeling what Jesus endured on the cross gives us clarity to the words of Mark 8:34 Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves take up their cross and follow me If we would be Jesus followers we too must be willing to bear the suffering and shame that others may put upon us so that others may hear the message of Jesus and be saved Jesus is not saying that everyone will hate us and shame us all the time. If we are true followers of Jesus, many people will see the salt and light and be drawn. Some will be drawn to that light and become followers of Jesus themselves. But the world will also mock and abuse us. If we are to endure it as followers of Jesus... We can only do it knowing that we follow in his footsteps. As he brought salvation to the world by dying, we endure it to bring salvation to the world by being mocked as we speak to them about Jesus. There's a cost and there's a benefit to being a Christian. Let me speak to you as someone who's been following Jesus for over 40 years now. It has cost me a lot. I'm sure it will cost me more before I die. But it's worth every sacrifice to know Jesus as my king and to be part of following him in his kingdom. Mark 15 is there in the scriptures for us to know that our king and our saviour bore the death for us and the shame we deserve so that we might worship and serve him all the days of our lives. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for our Lord's death. We thank you that he bore the guilt. We thank you that he bore the shame. And we thank you that it was all for us. Father, may we respond appropriately and be willing to follow him. Take up our cross. Amen.
0: Thanks very much, Wes. We're just queuing up the Sunday school kids to come back. Friends, we're going to move to our service of the Lord's Supper now. And if you don't have a little pack with the uh, grape juice and wafer in it. Please do stick up a hand and perhaps I can get the elders to give us a hand distributing those. Looking around trying to catch an elder's eye. Here we go. Thank you, Steve. Right. I think the box is over there on the back table near the pillar. Luke, there we go. Please do shoot up a hand and we'll make sure that you get one before we proceed with the service. And as well, mine seems to have gone missing too. Well, after reflecting on the cross this morning, what a great way to respond to God's word by celebrating... Jesus' death and resurrection in the Lord's Supper together. I'd like you to join me as we pray, uh, coming to God at the beginning of our Lord's Supper service. Let's pray together. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires are known, and from you no secrets are hid. We pray that you cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and rightly honour your holy name. Through Christ our Lord, who died and rose again for us. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ said that we're to love the Lord our God with all our hearts and with all our soul, with all our mind and all our strength. He said this is the first and greatest commandment. He said the second is like it, to love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. We pray the Lord would have mercy on us and write these commandments in our hearts and minds to keep them. But bearing that in mind, we're also called to examine our lives before we take part in the Holy Fellowship of the Lord's Supper. The Bible teaches this. As God, in his infinite love and mercy, gave his only beloved son, Jesus Christ, to die for us sinners on the cross. He suffered and atoned, therefore, our sins, that we might become God's children by adoption and grace and have everlasting life. So as we come to the Lord's Supper now, we've come to remember Christ's death and all that it means as he himself instructed. And so I invite you, who earnestly and truly repent of your sins, to come near with faith now to take this, this holy ordinance, this holy sacrament to strengthen you in your daily life. But it'd be right for us now to confess our sins to almighty God together. So let's pray. Almighty God, creator of the universe and judge of all, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. We have not loved you as we ought. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are sinners by nature. Quite simply, we've put Jesus on the cross. Most merciful God, through your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, please forgive us all the evil we have done and the good we've left undone and allow us to serve and please you from this time forward through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Our Heavenly Father, through the sacrifice of your Son, Jesus Christ, you've promised forgiveness of sins to all who truly repent and firmly trust in him. We pray this morning that you would have mercy on us to pardon and deliver us from all our sins and strengthen us to do your will through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We do not dare to come to your table merciful Lord, trusting in our righteousness, but only in your great mercy. We're not fit to gather up the crumbs under your table, but we know that your mercy is everlasting. So this morning as we take this this grape juice and this wafer, we pray that we might by faith eat and drink of your Son, Jesus Christ, to be united to him and he to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, in his infinite mercy, he gave his only son, Jesus Christ, to suffer death upon the cross for our redemption. He made thereby his one offering of himself, never to be repeated, a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. We pray this morning that as we receive this this wafer and this grape juice, in accordance with what Jesus taught us to do, that we might share in his most blessed body and blood. Jesus, who on the night he was betrayed, when he took bread and when he'd given thanks to God, he broke it, gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Of course, in the same way, after the supper, he also took the cup. And when he'd given thanks, he gave it to his disciples, saying, drink of this, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the remission of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We're going to do exactly that now. If you take the cellophane from the top of the pack, and take the little wafer out. As you hold it in your hand, remember the death that Christ died for you, paying for your sins. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for you, preserve your body and soul to everlasting life. Take and eat this now, remembering what Christ did for you, and feed on him in your heart by faith with thanksgiving. take the pack and peel the foil back you'll carefully open up the grape juice as you hold it in your hand remember the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ which was shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins drink this in remembrance that Christ's blood was shed for you and be thankful I invite you to Join me now as we pray together the prayer of thanksgiving and praise that's on page seven of the service outline. Raise our voices together in prayer to our God. About the middle of page seven. Let's pray. Almighty God, we bring you praise and thanksgiving and ourselves, our souls and bodies to be a holy and lifelong offering to you. Lord, please accept this duty and service we owe you, not because we deserve it, but because of Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name alone we come to you. Amen. And the peace of God, which is above all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the